So this morning, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, I'd like to start by reading from Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This passage, which is usually labeled the triumphal entry in our Bibles, is the main point of reference for our worship today, on Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was given no less than a royal welcome. He knowingly and intentionally rode a donkey that had never been ridden before, fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, about Jerusalem's coming king. The people waved palm branches and laid them on the road in front of Jesus. When we see palm branches, especially on a day like yesterday, we might think of vacation. But in the ancient world, palm branches were usually broken out to celebrate political or military victories. When the Jewish crowd cries out, Hosanna, they're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They're asking God to deliver them from their enemies, to grant them salvation from those who oppress them, which at this time in history is the nation of Rome. And when the crowd sings about the coming kingdom of our father David, they're thinking of passages like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. Those are passages where a kingly descendant of David, an anointed man of God, ascends the throne of Jerusalem puts Israel back in its rightful place of power and glory forever, and punishes the nations that oppose them with a rod of iron. So to sum it all up, this crowd has bold and specific expectations concerning who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do when he enters those city gates. And as days pass in the story, as the passage gets closer and closer to Thursday and Friday, Saturday, and then finally, Easter Sunday, we learn as we read that the crowd's expectations could not have been more wrong. But this morning, I'd like to ask, as we head into Holy Week ourselves, as we prepare to celebrate Easter, are our expectations of Jesus correct? Do our assumptions about who Jesus is And what he does and who he calls us to be, do those line up with the Jesus we read about in Scripture? Or is it possible that somehow, some way, 
we too can get a bit off track. But for that, we go back a few chapters from Mark chapter 11, specifically focusing on Mark chapters 8 through 10. So, feel free to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And of course, feel free to use the Bibles we have here and take one home with you if you need one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. I pray that our worship would be beneficial for us, encouraging for us, challenging, uplifting, all those things. But even more than that, I pray it would be glorifying to you. As we get out of our homes on a cold day when we're tempted to maybe stay home, tempted to relax, thank you that people have gathered here in this place, like we do every Sunday, to worship you. Whether it's 25 or 50 or 75 or a hundred or far more than that, thank you that we have the privilege of worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ today. And so, Father, be with us as we read from your word. I pray that you would reset our hearts and reset our minds and reset our expectations where they need to be reset as we prepare for Easter. Father, be with us this morning as we worship and be with us in the week ahead as well. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, as we've discussed before, each of the four Gospels in your Bible is unique. And in the case of Mark, his Gospel is by far the shortest, and most also consider it to be the oldest. But one thing I've always found fascinating about the Gospel of Mark is this incredible sense of urgency. Mark consistently gets down to business. He doesn't beat around the palm tree when he's telling the story of Jesus. You see it right from the very beginning in Jesus' very first words in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can sense the urgency in Jesus' words. That sermon from Jesus right there matches it up pretty well with the street preachers on the corners that we like to make fun of. The preachers that go to college campuses, the people that go to stadiums with megaphones and preach things like, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. We make fun of those preachers. But that's what Jesus sounds like in this passage we just read. And if those words don't communicate the sense of urgency enough, in the first 45 verses of the Gospel of Mark, we read the word immediately nine different times. Once every five verses, Mark uses the word immediately. This story will move at a breakneck pace. And it's not just in the beginning at chapter 1 but all the way up to our text in chapter 8. So we start by reading in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, 
You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So after quite some time together, time spent healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, preaching sermons, arguing with the religious leaders, telling parables, calming storms, and performing all kinds of other miracles along the way, Jesus asks his disciples a simple, straightforward question. Who do you say that I am? And in this major turning point in the Gospel of Mark, Peter, speaking on behalf of the group, gives a good answer. The Christ. Jesus confirms that Peter is correct, but then tells them not to tell anyone about it. Now, why not? I mean, doesn't that go against everything that we've been taught in Sunday school and in small groups about evangelism? What about the Great Commission? I thought we were supposed to tell everyone who Jesus is. So what gives? Well, the truth is that Jesus' disciples aren't much different from the crowd we read about earlier during the triumphal entry. Peter and the disciples got the title right when they said that Jesus is the Christ. But like those people in Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches and talking about the coming kingdom of David, well, just like them, the disciples' preconceived notions about what the Christ is supposed to do, those notions are incorrect. So in the verses following... Jesus corrects them. So, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this is the first of three very specific predictions from Jesus about what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He'll suffer, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and then rise from the dead. And if you look again at verse 32, Jesus said this plainly. It wasn't some kind of riddle the disciples had to figure out. It wasn't another one of his quirky parables. He said this plainly. And Peter, again, serving as the leader of the group, rebukes Jesus. He pulls Jesus aside and reminds him of what the Christ is really supposed to do. And suffering, rejection, and death, that's not part of it. But then Jesus makes it very clear that the false expectations Peter and his disciples have for him are not from God. They are from man. Those expectations of the crowd shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches are not from God. They're from man. And he even goes so far to refer to Peter, his close friend, his disciple. He refers to him as Satan. Now, as if that first prediction by Jesus wasn't bad enough, he makes two more predictions between now and the triumphal entry. We see the second one in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. 
And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's prediction number two. Prediction number three is in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Three very specific predictions. Three different times that Jesus is speaking plainly about what will happen to him. And yet each time the disciples don't get it. Mark chapter 9 verse 32 tells us that they're afraid to ask what these predictions might mean. But Jesus isn't just trying to show off when he makes these predictions. He's not just trying to prepare the disciples for the trauma they're about to experience. He's not just trying to soften the blow of the pain and the loss they're about to feel. Jesus is very intentionally teaching them who he is and what he will do. He's throwing their old expectations about the Christ to the curb and teaching them what their expectations should be instead. But then as he teaches them about who he is and what he will do, he also teaches them about who they are called to be and what they are called to do as his disciples. So again, we go back to Mark chapter 8, this time in verse 34, right after that conversation with Peter. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So right after that conversation with Peter, Jesus makes it clear that their arrival in Jerusalem is not a stop along the way on some journey to self-fulfillment. The disciples are being called to a life of self-denial. This trip will not end with Jesus and his disciples ascending earthly thrones. It will end with Jesus ascending a cross. And the disciples are called to take up crosses of their own. Following Jesus won't end with gaining the world. It ends with losing your life here to save it in eternity. Jump again to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. Again, right after one of his predictions. And they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is making it clear that following him will not be the disciples' ticket to power and prestige, or fame or greatness. It's a frank call to humility, service, and hospitality. And then finally, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, after Jesus talks more about humility and service and hospitality, he says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This journey will not end with the disciples ascending thrones at Jesus' right and left hand and exercising authority over their enemies. This journey will not end with Jesus flooding the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of Israel's enemies. It will end with Jesus dying on the cross as a ransom for sinners, not just from Israel, but from every tribe and nation and tongue. So it's safe to say that by now the disciples should have a very clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he will do when they arrive in Jerusalem. Again, that's three times that Jesus has spoken to them very, very plainly. Now, it's true that Jesus may get a parade when he gets to Jerusalem, but the disciples shouldn't be taken in by it. They should know by now that by the time Jesus leaves, he won't get a parade. It'll be a funeral procession. His entrance may remind them of a conquering general after a glorious battle. Or a victorious politician after a successful campaign. But they should know by now that he won't leave that way. He will leave as a suffering servant. Again, all those titles that people use for Jesus in these passages. Titles like Christ and Son of David, Son of Man. All those titles are correct. Jesus confirms that much. But how Jesus would fulfill those old prophecies, how he would function in those roles, the disciples and the crowds waving palm branches simply didn't understand. And to be totally honest, it's not until after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, even after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, only then will Peter and the rest of the disciples Finally, truly get it. Now, at this point, it may be easy to throw the disciples under the bus. You might ask, man, how could these people still not get it? Even after Jesus spoke so plainly to them three separate times. But before you do that, it's worthwhile to do a bit of healthy self-examination. And I'd ask, as we prepare ourselves for Easter... Some 2,000 years later. And knowing what we know, much more than the disciples did in Mark chapters 8 through 11, how might our understanding of Jesus and how might our expectations of Jesus fall short compared to what we actually read in Scripture? 
So a few examples. Number one, it's incredibly common to reduce Jesus to some meek and mild, don't rock the boat, you do your thing and I'll do mine, pushover. But the Jesus we've read about this morning, and the one that you can read about in the rest of the Gospels, is not your friendly neighborhood guidance counselor. He is the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is fully God and fully man. The one who will take on Roman nails in his hands and feet. The one who will willingly subject himself to the just wrath of God against sinners. The one who will stare down the powers of sin, death, and Satan and win. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb, but he is also a roaring lion. And if you don't believe me, just ask Peter after that rebuke in chapter 8, the one where Jesus called him Satan. Peter learned the hard way that Jesus is not to be trifled with, and he will not get bossed around by Peter, by you, or by me. Another false expectation that we might have of Christ is thinking that Jesus is our easy ticket to a life of earthly success, power, glory, and prosperity. He called his disciples back then, and he is still calling his disciples today to take up crosses and follow him on a path of self-denial. We're called to lives of humble service. Not dreams and aspirations of all the people who will someday be serving us. You're called to lose your life now, but gain it in eternity. Jesus is not just the wise, ethical teacher who can point you in the right direction to being well-adjusted, whatever that means, moral, or able to get along in the world. He demands your worship. He demands our allegiance. He demands our very souls. And then finally, Jesus is not someone that we can just put off. Someone that we can throw on the back burner. Remember that sense of urgency we talked about in the Gospel of Mark. How many times Mark uses the word immediately. Well, I think that sense of urgency popped up again in one of the verses that we just read. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. We read there, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is talking about judgment with a great sense of urgency. So if you've been toying with the idea of following Jesus, Maybe you've been doing it here and there. Maybe you do it when it suits you. Maybe you're thinking about following Jesus after you've had your fun. Or maybe when you get married. Or maybe when you have kids and need to teach them some good manners or some good morals. Maybe you've been delaying true faith and true obedience. Well, I'd encourage you not to wait any longer. Because as Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I would add, and I think Mark would agree, 
Repent and believe in the gospel immediately. So as we prepare for Easter, again, let's speak plainly about the Jesus that we claim to worship. Let's speak plainly about the Christ that we lay out palm branches for and welcome into our homes and teach our kids to believe in. This morning I received a devotion in my email from a seminary, and it's a Holy Week devotional series. And the author of this morning devotion said this. He talked about Palm Sunday Syndrome. And here's what he says. So, what is the Palm Sunday Syndrome? People like following Jesus when he's popular, when he gives them what they want, when he grants them power and fits into their preconceived notion of the good life. Unfortunately, this syndrome is prevalent in our own time. And many of us will celebrate this Palm Sunday with the same self-centered intentions. But will we follow Jesus to the cross on Friday? So after reading what we've read this morning, I pray that we wouldn't fall victim to Palm Sunday Syndrome. We certainly can't claim ignorance anymore after the passages that we've read. Because the Jesus we read about today is by no means tame and by no means domesticated. He is not to be co-opted for our worldly desires. We can't hijack the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus and employ it for our own selfish ends. We cannot mold and shape Jesus to fit into our expectations and our dreams. And if we try to, we'll end up worshiping a Christ who looks less like the Jesus that we actually read about in the Gospels and more like a false God created in our own image, a false God that we created through our own imaginations rather than Scripture. The Jesus we read about today is Son of Man, Son of David, Son of God. And it's true that he deserves a royal welcome. Every palm branch in our world should be thrown at his feet. But make no mistake, we worship him and we obey him on his terms, not ours. I pray that's true on Palm Sunday. I pray that would be true on Easter Sunday. And I pray that would be true on every other Sunday as well. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us. That we know who you are. We know who your son is. We know who your Holy Spirit is. And so, Father, I pray that as we enter into another Easter week, year after year, many of us will have some of the same traditions, some of the same rites that we go through. We'll read some of the same books, read some of the same devotionals, hear some similar sermons. But, Father, I pray that as we enter this Easter week, that our expectations of Jesus would be shaped by your word. And Father, I pray that we would respond well to the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. The crowds that worship Jesus, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, some of those same people may have been present a week later when people were shouting, Crucify Him. 
It's very easy to respond poorly when we realize who your son actually is and what your son is actually calling us to do. But Father, I pray by your grace, by the Holy Spirit, we would respond well to the Jesus we read about this morning. I pray that we would follow him, that we would be faithful to him, that we would give him all the glory, all the worship, and all the obedience that is due him. And again, I pray that it wouldn't just be this special week in the Christian calendar, but that it would mark every single day of our lives. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ, even when he issues the incredibly difficult challenges that we read this morning. Father, empower us to be faithful disciples of your Son. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.